0: Good evening everyone, it's um, really good to um, be here again tonight, I want to say to see you all, but um, that is not the case, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, tonight we're continuing our study with, um, on Ephesians chapter 4, and um, we'll be studying from verse 17 to verse 32, so we'll be finishing that chapter but um before we get into that let us just um, bow our heads and ask the lord to please um, be with us and to guide us through this lesson father i i do thank you for for this um evening lord i do thank you that we have the wonderful privilege of gathering together again and lord that we have Our Bible's open in front of us and excited to hear what um, you have to teach us tonight, Lord. Oh, Lord, I ask that you would please quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, Lord, that we would be able to think clearly. Um, Lord, help me to speak as you would have me speak. And um, Lord, that ultimately that this lesson would um, bring glory to you, Lord. We've got a lot of practical things to cover tonight, a lot of things that... Um, we can apply in our everyday life, Lord. And so we ask that you would please show us where we where we lack and show us where we need to change, Lord, that we can, from this evening, um, start applying some of these principles and, um, in so doing, be more conformed to your Son. I thank you for this privilege, and I ask your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, Ephesians chapter four and um last week we went to up to verse 16 and the breakdown i gave you last week was verse 1 to 16 um predominantly speaking about christian unity christian unity and even how gifts um, play a part in christian unity another the other the next breakdown that i gave you the next aspect is verse 17 to 19 which is our old walk. So we'll start off by looking at that tonight, our old walk. And then in verse 20 to the end of the chapter, it's speaking about our new walk of life, how our new walk of life should be. So that we'll find in verse 20 to 32. And in that um, portion of verse 20 to 32, the first three verses, verse 20 to 23, so it's actually those first four verses, Um, we will see a transition passage, if I could put it like that. How a transition from the old man to the new man. So there will be that gap in there. So in verse 17, Paul switches switches gears from dealing with the blessedness or the gifts um, the believer experiences because of being part of the body of Christ. And now focuses on our walk, as in our daily conduct. So that's the switch that happens in verse 17. We will see in verse 17 to 32 how this new walk of life um, helps us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called, which we saw last week in verse 1. And also we'll also see in these verses 17 to 32 how this um, forms part of endeavoring um, to keep the unity of the faith. So applying these things will help us to Um, be more united as the body of Christ. And also applying these things will help each one individually to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith they are called. So, let's get into verse 17. Paul says, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Essentially, Paul is saying, don't act like everyone else. Don't act like your former crowd. That is to say your speech, your pursuits, the way you give, um, your reactions to situations. All of this needs to be different. Remember, you were once a part of this crowd. But as we saw in Ephesians 2, that but now or but God, being children of disobedience, but God. By his grace we are saved. And so because of this this but God moment, um because this has taken part in your life, you are called to be separate. We are called to be sanctified. And um in second Corinthians chapter four verse um second oh, Corinthians chapter six verse fourteen, a verse you'll be familiar with is be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But then in verse seventeen, just later on in that chapter, it says Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So we are called to be separated, separated from the idol, separated from um, the way um, the people think, the way people do things. We are called to be separate. And so it's sad and frustrating and often just confusing to see someone who claims to be saved, But still enjoys the company of a lost crowd. The two just are almost irreconcilable. And um, these things should not be so. And that's why Paul says we need to come out. But then also in verse 17 it says. They walk walk not as the other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. That is to say they were doing things the way they think that it should be done. They were doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. This is not good, but understandable. Because um, what else do they have to go by? Because without God's word and the indwelling spirit in each of us, which happens when we get saved, what else is supposed to guide the unbeliever? accept the vanity of their mind, their own thoughts, what they think is best. And so it's a, I want to say, it's an unfortunate situation they find themselves in. And that is why it's only by grace that we are saved and we need to take that to them because they are led by the vanity of their minds. And this type of life, being led by the vanity of your mind, will lead to sinful desires and a deceitful heart would lead to moral relativity and that leads to an empty and vain life. If you've ever read Ecclesiastes and you read how Solomon gave himself to all the desires of his heart. And we'll actually look at some of those verses later. But if you look at that, you'll see it's all vain. And so living according to the vanity of your mind, letting doing what's right in your own eyes will lead to a life that essentially is relative, moral relativity. Nothing is wrong. Nothing is right. And um, it ultimately leads to emptiness. And that's exactly what Solomon concluded. And so that's why Paul says, don't walk like the Gentiles. You have the word. You have the indwelling spirit. Don't walk in the same way. You can open to, um, well, first let's read verse 18. Um, Verse 18 says, Having the understanding, speaking about these Gentiles, the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them um, because of the blindness of their heart. Because of the blindness of their heart. You can open to First Corinthians um, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And... Um, As we just read, Paul goes on to explain why these Gentiles live the way they do. Why they live in the vanity of their mind. Why they pursue these things. It's because they have blindness. It's because they have an unregenerate heart. This unregenerate heart is a heart that doesn't understand or is ignorant towards spiritual things. We saw that in verse 18 having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. So it's a heart that doesn't understand. It's a heart that is ignorant towards spiritual things. In First Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, But the natural man, that is the unsaved man, which we're reading about in Ephesians, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So this unregenerate heart is a heart of, that doesn't have understanding. It's a heart that's ignorant towards spiritual things. This unregenerate heart also um, is a heart that misses out on the life that it was created for. This life that it was created for. To be saved. To have eternal hope. To have that abundant life that Jesus spoke of. Um, purpose and fulfillment fellowship with your creator that is what we that is the life of god as we read about in, uh, in Ephesians 4:18 that they are alienated from the life of god and so this unregenerate heart is doesn't have understanding is ignorant and doesn't know this life of god and as we read in second corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 it's a heart that is ultimately blinded by satan 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3 says but if our gospel be hid it is hid to them that are lost and verse 4 says in whom the god of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine unto them and so this this unregenerate heart is also blinded by satan And it is because of this empty and blind heart that leads the unregenerate man's thoughts and deeds. um, Which leads to, sorry, let me rephrase that. It's because of the unregenerate man's heart that leads to the deeds that we're going to read about in verse 19. In verse 19 we read, Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness. To work uncle- all uncleanness with greediness. And so you have a heart that is alienated from the life of God. That doesn't understand spiritual things. And because you, this, this Gentile has this heart, it leads to this hopelessness. This, this meaningless life. This life that is past feeling. So things don't... I want to say their heart is hardened. They couldn't care less. Or this heart of lasciviousness, which we also read in verse 19, which is essentially excessive living. This this life that just can't be satiated. And so you either have on the one side, this heart, this unregenerate heart leads to a life that is meaningless, hopeless. Or it leads to a life that is given over to fulfilling every lust that you have, but ultimately leaves you empty. This life doesn't satisfy. Nothing is ever enough. Sexual pleasures, lasciviousness. Sin, that's the uncleanness spoken of in verse 19. Money, that's the greediness spoken of in verse 19. Nothing can fill the God-shaped void that exists in every soul. And that's why Paul says, come out, put away You can't live amongst these gents. Your life can't look like it because none of this is true of you. And so these people who have these God-shaped voids in them, the more they give themselves to these lasciviousness, the greediness, the, 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 the uncleanness, the more they give themselves to it, the more their hearts grow hard. The more they go past feeling. Almost like a scab that forms. And they get disappointed each time they pursue these things. When I think about this idea, it tells me that there's something pre-programmed in every person that distinguishes right from wrong. Because doing what's right leads to fulfillment, leads to purpose. Doing what's wrong leads to emptiness leads to this void, this meaningless. So something inside, even in the unregenerate heart, knows what's right and what is wrong. We read about that in Romans chapter 1. But the more they prick their conscience by ignoring this call to meaning, this call to hope, the more they ignore this, the harder their heart gets until they're ultimately past feeling. So I think that what we should caution ourselves against is not to fall for the trap that following your heart or following your desires will lead to fulfillment. That's the theme today. That is what we get told in movies, that's what we get told in even children get told at, at school level at kindergarten, in, in in fairy tales, is to follow your heart and to and to um Do what makes you happy. Follow your desires. But that ultimately is not what the Bible teaches. That ultimately leads to a life that is empty. Ravi Ravi Zacharias said the following. Um, Pastor Mike shared a similar quote recently in Romans class. But Ravi Zacharias said, Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain but from being weary of pleasure it is not pain that has driven the west into emptiness it has been the drowning of meaning in oceans of pleasure the drowning of meaning in oceans of pleasure I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes and I want you to see what what Solomon had to say, Ecclesiastes, about essentially giving himself to pleasure and how it ultimately led to his emptiness, to vanity. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, just after the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 8. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8, it says, All things... Are full of labor. Man ca- cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So you won't be satisfied if you think hearing this or seeing this or whatever it is that you desire, giving yourself to that desire will not satisfy you. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought. Now, before this, and I encourage you to read it, he says he gave himself to everything that he wanted, and he explains what it is he gave himself to. And then he says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on all the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and a vexation of the Spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This also is vanity. So if you're in the situation where you currently think that if I can just have X, if I can just have this relationship, if I can just have this phone, this car, These clothes, this house, this amount of knowledge, this respect in society. Whatever it is that you give yourself to and think that if you have that thing, you will be fulfilled. That leads to ultimate meaninglessness. Because you gave yourself to the thing that you thought would fulfill you and that thing left you empty. And so when Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 4 and when he says they are past feeling and they have given themselves they've completely given themselves over to lasciviousness and all this but ultimately it left them empty so paul says don't walk as the other gentiles walk who seek fulfillment in the things of this world but rather set your affections on things above and be led of the spirit and God's word and not your deceitful heart. And that's the privilege. It's not a it's not a curse. It's not a oh, I can't live according to my desires. It's a privilege to have God's word and to have the spirit to guide you instead of only your sinful heart and deceitful heart. Let's move on. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 20. It says, but ye have not so learned Christ. So this is what I call the transition from the old man to the new man. Now, Paul is going to speak about this transition. and And he starts off by saying, but ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. He's essentially saying, if you have learned, that is to say, to gotten to know Christ by hearing and being taught the truth, that's what we see in verse 21, the hearing and the teaching of the truth. So if you have gotten to know Christ by the hearing and being taught the truth found in him, you cannot conclude that you, are, you can now continue living like the Gentiles. He spoke about the life of the Gentiles and he says, you have not so learned Christ You can't, if you've been exposed to the truth and you've heard the truth of the gospel, you can't conclude in your mind and say, now that I am saved, I can continue living like the Gentiles. It's not saying you can't do that. You can do that. But it says you can't conclude that biblically because that would be a completely false conclusion to make. If you you conclude that you can continue living like the Gentiles, You never learned Christ. You never got to know Christ. You haven't found truth yet. If I can put it simply, um, that's not how the Christian life works. Nor is it how a Christian thinks. A Christian who has been taught the truth by Christ, rather thinks like verse 22 to 24. Let's read verse 22 to 24. It says, That ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put off on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That is how someone who is saved thinks. That's how they start to think. Is more, How do I put off? How do I put on? I want to be renewed in the spirit of my mind. Now, in verse 21, something I just want to point out. It says, if you have heard and you have been taught by him, this newness of life spoken of in the rest of the chapter is true for those who have fellowship with Christ. Fellowship. You hear him. You are taught by him. So the admonition I want to say is that if your only source of spiritual food is from a pastor or from a lesson like this. Which is not a bad thing. But if it's your only source of spiritual food. you And you never hear personally from the truth. In other words from Jesus directly through the truth. The scripture. So from the truth through the truth. Then you will lack spiritual growth. Grow in fellowship with your savior. By giving heed to the truth that is found in him and let that truth shape the way you live and think. Now, before we get into verse um, 22 and onward, I just want to mention that a great cross-reference to this passage in Ephesians chapter 4 is Colossians chapter 3. So I know Pastor Mike has pointed it out in Colossians class, so I'm not going to do much of those cross-referencing now. But I would encourage you to study that in your own time. Look at Ephesians 4 and 5 and and cross-reference that to Colossians chapter 3. Now, in verse 22, it says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So put off the former conversation. That is to lay aside, to renounce this old way of living, the way of the Gentiles. Now, it says put off. But when we studied in Romans chapter 6 verse 6, it says knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Our old man is crucified. So why do we have to put off this old man if this old man is already crucified? It's a classic example of standing versus state. Your standing is that you are crucified with Christ. But your state is one of, I can be living for the old man, the old nature. Or I can be putting off that old nature and be putting on the new man. You see, the one is an eternal standing. The one never changes. The one is by grace through faith. The other, it's a gift of God. The other is one of what do you do daily with the truth? What do you do daily with this grace that has been shown you, shown to you, that's been imputed to you? If this is God's desire... And the plan for every saint, right? To put off the old man and to put on the new man. Why do we still find Christians caught up in sin? Well, it's because of our own corrupt and deceitful lusts. That's what we see at the end of verse 22. Our corrupt and deceitful lusts. That's the lusts of the old nature. You see, God gave, made us free agents. We have the ability to choose. And that's why we still find Christians sinning, because you still have the ability to choose and you still have that corrupt nature, that sinful nature of the old man. The old man has a polluted, perverted view of life and morality. The old man is deceived and often justifies his or her actions by distorting, the truth. So shifting. You see that's why I said moral relativism starts creeping in. You shift the standard of what's truly good. What's truly right. And so you try to justify your deeds. But ultimately the line of truth is, hasn't moved. You've th- you think you've moved. But it hasn't moved. And so it still leads to the same destruction. The same vanity. As a Christian you should not take orders from this old nature. You should reckon it to be dead to sin, but alive unto God. Also, don't think that you can control it. Don't think that you can control this old nature. We're told in verse 22 to put off, not tame, not control, not try and stay in control. You'll be deceived by it and by its lusts. So don't try and tame it. Don't try and control it. Put it off verse 23 put it off and be renewed in the spirit of your mind now once you've committed to putting off this old man what is the first step that you must take mind renewal i want to say spiritual reprogramming spiritual reprogramming this is only possible for those who are spiritually minded In other words, those who are saved and have the Spirit dwelling in them. You can't have this renewal of mind without the Spirit dwelling inside of you and working inside of you. So you've committed to putting off and now the Spirit starts renewing your mind. You see, I think it's very important, verse 23, that's wedged between putting off and verse 24, putting on. It's very important because someone can go and say, I have this bad thing in my life. I'm going to put this good thing in my life. And it can be purely religious. It can be purely for the sight of men without any spiritual transformation. And so Paul makes, emphasizes the renewing of your mind before he goes into verse 24, where he says, put on the new mind. Because so many religious people focus purely on the outward appearance of the new man and completely miss the heart, that is to say, the attitude or the spirit behind it. That's why it says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That is the attitude of your mind. You need to have an inward change that results in an outward change or an outward application. It doesn't just help you go and you say, I'm going to swap this for this, purely religiously. Because many people do that. There needs to be an inward change of your heart. In Romans 12 verse 2. It says. And be not conformed to this world. But be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. In Second Corinthians 4 verse 16. It says. Um, for which cause we faint not. But, through our out, uh, but though our outward man perish. Yet the inward man is renewed day by day in colossians 3 verse 10 it says and put on the new man which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him you see there's a renewal an inward renewal that needs to take place before you just stick good deeds onto that same old man i want to say corpse if you could put it like that there needs to be an inward change So let's test our hearts, pray for God to renew our minds daily as we go out about putting on the new man and not just blindly sticking a bunch of new man deeds on our old man. Let God help us daily. Don't think about the big picture and how far you are from holiness, from that complete in him perfectness that we are called to take it day by day. Lord, what of the old man is standing in the way? Lord, what of the new man must be present in my life? Renew my thoughts that I might live that way. Verse 24 says, And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. This new man is created in the likeness of God's righteousness and holiness. That's your standing. The new man is created in God's righteousness and God's holiness. Think about that. That is an incredible, incredible gift. An unmerited standing that we have as Christians. That's why Paul exclaims often, Oh, the riches of his mercy and the depth of his grace. When I read this, I thought about this hymn, the hymn that says, or the hymn that's called, And Can It Be? I want to read you one of the verses of And Can It Be that I should gain. It says, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus, and all in him, is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness, divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ. My own and clothed in righteousness divine, that is who we are, that's our standing, and nothing can change that. You see, if this is the truth of your standing, this unmerited, unmeasurable show of grace, how can your state not be affected or inspired by your standing? How can did not be affected. Put on this new man, not to earn anything, but because you have been given all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, including this new man. Verse 25 Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, after introducing the new man um, and the motive for putting off and replacing it um, with the old, with the new, Paul gets into some practical ways in which we can do that daily. So Paul gets into some practical ways in which we can do this now. I just want to remind you about verse three of Ephesians chapter four, that it says, endeavor to keep the unity so this unity is only possible um, if those in the church are putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Christians who are concerned with their state and not just about their standing. And so you can have this unity, endeavor to keep the unity by applying these things. And you're applying these things because it's a putting off of the old and a putting on of the new. So it starts off in verse 25. It says, "Line." Put away lying. Now, you may think this is obvious, but let me point out three things about lying and why I think Paul is mentioning it. The first thing is the context of the Gentile world. Lying is second nature to most people who grow up in pagan cultures. It's part of daily conduct in business, friendships, marriages, all of that. That's how these Gentiles lived. And these Ephesians grew up in this world, um, with this worldview, and therefore need to be taught a new one. And so Paul speaks about something as simple as lying because it's part of their worldview. Another reason why I think Paul is speaking about lying is because old habits die hard. It is true that when we get saved, the spirit now dwells in us and leads us, but we still have this old nature fighting against this new nature. Unfortunately, the old nature doesn't just miraculously disappear. So Paul acknowledges the need for daily renewing of our minds and deeds, even in the small things, small things like lying, You need to think differently. We need to be renewed. And so the last reason I think Paul speaks about lying or mentions lying is also because it's easy to conceal or justify. Let me give you some examples and see if any apply to you. You can hide the defects in something you are selling or sell it for more than what it's worth. You can tell someone you don't want, you can tell someone who you don't want to see that you're occupied and you can't see them. You can color in a story to make it seem better um, or make someone you're telling the story about seem worse. You can omit certain points from a story purposely to misguide the listener's understanding you can use it to pull out of commitments by saying, yes, I'll be there, but then, sorry, something else came up. And when I think about that, social media, instant messaging, makes that so much easier, because you don't have to look anyone in the face and just say, sorry, I can't. And that is essentially lying, unless it's obviously for something serious. But if it's for something serious, then It will be something worth discussing. So um, I think lying is very easy to conceal or to justify. And we need to check ourselves whether we are um, in line with the standard that God calls us to be. So as simple as put away lying may sound that Paul is saying here, it's not easy to apply. So pray that the Spirit open your eyes to any dishonesty in you and deal with you. Um, and deal with it one day at a time. So replacing lies with truth will, one, separate you from this Gentile world, which you're called to be a, to come out from, but it will also help you in the pursuit of unity in the church. You can't have unity when brothers and sisters are lying to one another to any extent. So let's put away lying. Um And that's why it says, rather speak truth, everyone, to his neighbor. Now, verse 27, verse 26. It says, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Be angry and sin not. Now, we had an excellent lesson, lesson this Sunday on meekness. And how meekness affords a place for your wrath. This principle, once again is affirmed in this verse. There's a place where wrath be angry and sin not. Meekness will afford you the ability to get angry without having to sin. Now, how can we be angry and not sin? Think about the principle that we learn about in James chapter 1. I want you to look at James chapter 1. We have a principle in James chapter 1 that I think applies to be angry and sin not. James chapter 1 and verse 14 speaks about temptation and how lust forms and how lust leads to sin. So I want to apply that to anger. In James chapter 1 verse 14 it says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed then with when lust hath conceived it brings forth sin and sin when it is finished brings forth death so how can you be angry and not sin well first thing is know that you will be tempted in other words you will be tempted to act on your anger you will be angered and anger is the temptation to act upon it okay so you will be tempted And the desire to take vengeance or to see that other person suffer will come up. And so that is that lust, I want to say. So every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when that lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And so that's the principle. Temptation, in other words, the anger will be there. And the the temptation will be to act upon that anger. And so when you act upon that anger in vengeance, or in hurting another person, or in saying something back that isn't sinful, that is, then anger has led to sin. But the moment you al- so the moment you allow that sin, or that, that temptation to stick with you, to fester, and to let the sun go down on your wrath, as it says at the end of the verse. Lust hath conceived in your heart, and it's bringing forth sin. Rather, we as Christians should deal with anger biblically. We should not let the sun go down in our wrath. We should not um, let it fester in our hearts. We should not act upon the temptation that comes with the anger. In Matthew 5 verse 22, Jesus said, That, um, But I say unto you, that that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. So there is anger, which can be for a righteous cause. And Jesus set an example of how to deal with anger, how to deal with this righteous anger. In Mark chapter 3 verse 5, It speaks about Jesus and it says, And when he had looked round about on them with anger, that is the Pharisees, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. So you see the anger led to a grief for the hardness of their heart, for the sinful state that they are in. And so anger can be fine if it's righteous anger. And Jesus gave us an example of that. Also, how Christians should deal with anger biblically. Paul said in in Romans 12, verse 17 to 19, Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And so we see there how we should strive to live peaceably with all men. That is how a Christian should deal with anger. In, and Peter also said something similar. He said in F- First Peter chapter two and verse 21, it says, "For even hereunto were, were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us, us an example that we should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth." Now, verse 23: Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Do you see how Christians should deal with anger? Anger is fine, anger is one thing, but it's when it leads to sin. And Christians are called to deal with that anger differently. So. Anger is sinful if you keep it bottled up, if it leads to bitterness, unforgiveness, Um, if it is without a cause. In other words, if it's not for self-defense or if it's not for blasphemy or something that is a sin against God or something like that, then it is sin. It is biblical if you take it to God, if it is not fueled by our own pride, but rather by a worthy cause. If it is dealt with in love, with the purpose of restoring that brother who sinned against you, as we read about in Matthew chapter 18. So that's why Paul encourages forgiveness. As it says in Second Corinthians, when it speaks about the brother, um, lest such an one be overcome with overmuch sorrow, right? Because you're not forgiving him. Then later on in that chapter, In 2nd Corinthians chapter 2, it says, To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Now verse 11 of 2nd Corinthians 2. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. Lest Satan should get, get an advantage of us. For he is not ignorant. For we are not ignorant of his devices. We see exactly the same thing. Um, in 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 Ephesians chapter four, us, verse verse oh, twenty six, twenty seven, where it says, "Neither give place to the devil, neither give place to the devil." We see the devil creeping in when anger is near, <clears throat> and we know that our adversary, the devil, according to First Peter five eight, is walking around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. So I like what one commentator, Albert Barnes had to say about this. He said, The devil is always busy when we are angry and in some way, if possible, will lead us into sin. The best way to avoid his wiles is to curb the, tempt, the, the temper and restrain even sudden anger. Curb our temper and restrain sudden anger. And so, because he says, The devil is always near when we are angry. So next time something angers you, know that Satan wants to use that to tempt you to sin. So rather give your anger to the Lord. And in so doing, you are resisting the devil, which is First Peter 5, 9, which follows about how the adversary, the devil, um, is walking around seeking whom he may devour. It says whom you resist steadfast. So resisting him is by giving our anger to the Lord and not being suddenly angered. Um, in the moment. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Now, I'm sure I don't need to convince you that stealing is a big no-no for Christians, right? Um, Any form of stealing. So, if stealing was part of your former uh, or your way of life before you were saved, put it off. In um, a Christian, sorry, a Christian, as much as possible, must be hardworking and not willingly burdensome or lazy. Because I, I want to extend stealing a bit further. I want to extend it to. Being burdensome, being lazy, because you're essentially stealing from someone else's labor and from someone else's time. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, Paul says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busy bodies. But are busy bodies. So Paul admonishes the church in Thessalonica about hard work. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse um, 8, Paul calls those who don't supply to their own homes worse than an infidel. You see, these may seem like very hard and uncompassionate sayings. But it is not discouraging helping those who can't find work but have a willing attitude. Even at the end of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28, it says that he may give unto him that needeth. See, so, so Paul is not saying you must be hard, work hard, make a lot of money, and then not give. He's saying work hard so that you can give. So the problem is not with being able to give. The problem is with the person, the heart of the person wanting to receive. Um, but it's discourage, um, But it is discouraging helping those who prefer to depend on the church... Or on the working class, so Paul is discouraging the 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 help or the giving the that those eat who are willingly burdensome on the church. This is a disgrace to the church and is equivalent to stealing. so never be someone who is willingly burdensome on the church, but rather if you're in true need, by all means. Those who can help in the need, need to provide, need to help in the need. We need to give us God as God has prospered us. There's nothing against giving. The problem is the heart of the person who is asking for the help. And so this may seem off topic, but I'm connecting it to stealing. Because there are many people in the body of Christ who would often capitalize on the the setting of a church and the people in the church for their own gain and rather than diligently seeking to find a job so that they can be the ones giving to those who are in need so Paul encourages hard work and discipline in avenues of honest and good business not for selfish Gain, but to be able to be more of a blessing to those in need. This is how the body of Christ functions. Those who work supply the funds for the various ministries and missionaries. Those who work supply um, the, the means for those ministries and missionaries. Without this balance, ministry fails. Um, I wanted to read you a quote. It is an excellent quote in a book that I was reading recently about the perfect will of God. But I don't have the book with me. (laughs) But so I'll post it on the group afterwards. All right. Verse 29. It says, let no communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Corrupt communication, that is essentially bad, decayed, rotten, speech that is unclean, speech that smells. Now, we're not talking about smelly breath. We're talking about speech that stinks in the sense that it is decayed, it's rotten, it's filthy, it's unclean. So essentially, any speech that does not edify or instruct and any speech that is displeasing to God any speech that is displeasing to God. This is one of the most appropriate admonitions, as it is one of the most difficult points to implement. James chapter 3 verse 2, your attendance verse for tonight, says, James chapter 3 verse 2, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able to bridle the whole body. If you are able, able to open your mouth and never speak corruptly, you are perfect. In other words, you are not a human. The sad fact about this is that it speaks of a deeper problem. Because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So if there's corrupt and evil things coming out of our mouth, it's because there's still corruption in our heart. This old man, this old nature, every now and then, still sticks its head out. So how do we adhere to the verse that says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth? Well, you daily put off the old and put on the new. I emphasize daily. As we also read in 2nd Corinthians earlier. Paul actually advises us to focus. On edifying. Graceful speech. Rather than not corrupt speech. He says. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good. To the use of edification. That it may minister grace unto the hearers If your focus is to administer grace to edify, to speak good, then it will be a lot more difficult for that old man to speak corruptly, if I could put it like that. And so if you set your heart in administering this grace um, by which we are sealed and this grace by which we are kept to those around you, your speech will follow suit. It's also worth reminding ourselves that we will one day give account of the words that we idly or sinfully speak. So as someone once told me, when it comes to speech and what you say, they said, taste your words before you spit them out. Taste your words before you spit them out. And I think that is a daily principle that each of us should have on the forefront of our minds as we put off the old man and put on the new man so that we can administer grace to the hearers. Alright, now something that I just want to point out briefly in um, verse 25, 28 and 29. 25 says, put away lying, speak every man truth. Verse 28 says, let him that still rather work and labor with his hands. Verse 29 says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good. So this is now, if you're familiar with replacement theology, I'm, I'm using that tongue-in-cheek. But this is proper replacement theology, where you replace the evil thing, or the bad thing, the sinful thing, with the good thing. As Christians, we are not merely called to lay off or omit doing certain things, but to put on and to commit to doing certain things. If you don't replace what you lay off, you will be an empty Christian with nothing to offer. Verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. God is grieved when his children refuse to change their old ways of sin for the righteous ways of the new life. That is when the Spirit, when God is grieved, is when Christians refuse to lay off and to put on. Examples of this grieving is through any of the ways discussed in the surrounding context. It can be by lying, which we spoke about, anger, stealing, corrupt speech. All of these things is a way in which we can grieve the Spirit. In verse 31, it also speaks about bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. These must be put away with you with all malice. And so... Anything, in this context done against I was saying done in disobedience to what God expects from us is something that grieves God. Now there are definitely more things that will grieve the Spirit but I think it can be summarized as following disobedience to His guidance which mainly is summarized in Scripture God's guidance and um sorry disobedience to god's word will lead to um a life that is grieving the spirit disobedience so you need to know god's word so that the spirit can lead you through that truth so that you do not grieve the spirit so it all comes down to scripture once again Then it says in verse 30, you shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Now, we spoke about this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, and how the Spirit of God is our down payment. It's our guarantor um, of eternal redemption. It's what the fact that we have the Spirit, the fact that we are sealed by that Spirit is what gives us hope of the payment, the final payment which will be made when we are ultimately redeemed, when Christ comes to take his bride away. And so this is, also speaking about the spirit, I also think it's a good time um, to pick up, to just briefly mention the personhood of the spirit, because many teach that the spirit is merely a blind and impersonal force. This is not the case if we look at the way scripture reveals um, or speaks of the spirit. In Ephesians 4 verse 30, we read about grieving the spirit. You can't grieve a force. You can grieve a person. John 14 and John 16, the spirit, the comforter, is spoken or addressed in, in personal pronouns. He, his, we see that. That's also, you don't refer to things like that. John 14 and John 15, um, the Spirit takes personal care of believers and comforts them. He's called the Comforter. That is not something a force does. In John 16, the Spirit speaks and the Spirit guides. That's something a person does. In John 16, it speaks about the Spirit convicting of sin, righteousness and judgment. That's something only a person can do. A personhood of of the Spirit. In Romans 8, verse 26 to 27, the Spirit feels and helps our infirmities as he intercedes for us. That is something only a person can do. In First Corinthians 12, verse 11, we read that the Spirit has a will as he divides severally the gifts as he will. So the Spirit has a will. I just thought I'd mention that on the side. All right, let's get into the last two verses and finish up. It says, verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, bitterness, this can definitely stem from pent up anger. That is to say, let this letting the sun go down on your anger. In um Hebrews 12, verse 14 to 16, we're not going to read that now, but it speaks about a root of bitterness that will spring up in you if you do not strive to live peaceably with those around you. We read about that as well in, in Romans 12. So striving for peace implies forgiveness and anger appropriately dealt with. If you don't do this, you will be defiled. That is to say, you will be completely polluted, soiled, and that root that grew in you will grow into a tree because you gave place to the devil through your anger. And it will lead to, I want to say, a tree of bitterness. And potentially, this tree, this bitterness, will lead you to do things that you will forever regret. And that's what we read in Hebrews 12 6. How that. Um, esau sold his birthright and um, something he eternally forever regretted all because of anger bitterness now the next thing in verse 31 says anger and um, all bitterness and wrath and anger now wrath is violent or external anger james chapter 1 verse 20 says for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of god So it's a violent external anger. This is acting out in in the passion of a moment. So don't let your emotions or your passions dictate your actions. That's what it says when it speaks about wrath. We're not going to go into anger. We've spoken about anger. the next thing in verse 31 is clamor. This is what you will find at your typical riot or protest. People making loud sounds and outcries to express some displeasure complaint, or demand. Christians should never partake in such events or be guilty of such out of control, emotionally driven behavior. Emotionally driven behavior. next thing in verse 31 is evil speaking, largely dealt with when we spoke about corrupt communication, but it can also include things like slandering others, like tail bearing, um, or Having arguments with other people with no purpose just to, to prove that you're right. That's evil speaking. And then it says must be put away from you with all malice. Now malice, according to the Webster's Dictionary, is extreme enmity of heart or malevolence. A disposition to injure others without cause from mere personal, for mere personal gratification or from a spirit of revenge unprovoked malignity or spite so it's hurting people just because you want to it's for no apparent cause this is amongst um, this amongst all the other things mentioned here needs to be put away far from the believer we have no business partaking in any of these deeds of the old man we are to be different from the world hence our conduct needs to be different our conduct should Im- imitate verse 32 and verse 32 says and be kind one to another tender hearted forgiving one another even as god for christ's sake has forgiven you i want to summarize it as just be nice <laughs> treat others as you would have them treat you forgive as you have been forgiven How can we, who have been forgiven such a great debt, not forgive our brothers and sisters who might offend against us in comparatively small things? I'll let the words of Jesus drive the point home. Jesus was asked how many times we should forgive a brother that sins against us. Pastor Mike mentioned this on Sunday. And Peter came unto him and said unto the Lord, How oft shall I forgive my brother, Um, my brother's sin against me, and forgive him? Seven, till seven times. And Jesus said unto him, I say unto thee, until seven times. I say unto thee, until seven times, but until 70 times seven. And then Jesus goes into a parable of a man who owed a king a large debt, like 10,000. I can't remember what the unit was, pennies or whatever. And how he begs the king to forgive him this ruler and this ruler forgives him and he sets him free of all his debt and then this same man goes into the street and he finds a man who owes him only a hundred pennies and so you see the difference in scale we have been forgiven such a great debt by christ dying for us on this on the cross how can we keep the small the hundred penny debt against the brother who sins against us and jesus concludes the parable by saying Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, Thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? So, don't be like the world. Put off the old man. A Christian cannot conclude that now that he has learned Christ that he can live like the world. You cannot conclude that. So, renew your mind by the word. Put on the new man. And as Jesus said, be nice, treat others as you would have them treat you, and forgive those who trespass against you because you have been shown such great grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Um, It's been such a blessing and such a privilege to spend this time in your word. To be able to um, be exhorted by it, be encouraged by it, be, um, be helped by it, Lord. Um, to live lives that are pleasing unto you, Lord. Help us every day as we find things of the old man sticking out its head. That, Lord, that we would put it off. And um, Father, that you would, through the renewing of our minds, through your word, show us how we can apply um, the new man. Put on the the deeds of the new man in our lives. Help us, each of us, Lord, we each have our own struggles. I think so many of the things we spoke of tonight as universal application. And so, Lord, I I trust that you would deal with each one individually. And, um, Father, help us to change. And, Lord, that, that you would be glorified, Lord, and that more people will be reached by the changed life they see in us. And when they see that, Lord, may we point it all to you for your glory.